If I could have you open in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be spending the majority of our time in verses 1 through 4. So if you would turn with me there. Starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thinking on what Evan was saying in the back room there, that the love and the mercy that has been put on display in our lives. The fact that You chose us. You chose us type sinners. You came to the prostitutes and the tax collectors, Lord. and You came to those who were sick, those who were needy those who were poor, those who were dirty. And You've ransomed us as Your people. Lord, we thank You. We thank You to be able to stand here today and claim the name of Jesus. And now, Lord, as as we look at this text here and we look beyond into eternity, I ask, Father, help us both as speaker and listener. I ask, would You give us grace now Would Your Spirit be upon this meeting place? Would it own the words? Would it own Your words, Father? Open the ears of the listeners. Let them hear and understand. In Christ's name I ask. Amen. Okay, so we're looking here at Colossians chapter 3. We see it begins with these words. If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, Before we can understand exactly what it is that the Apostle Paul is teaching on and why it is so important in our Christian lives, and not only in entirety, but on a day-to-day basis down to the more minute level, we, we have to understand the context of what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this letter to the Colossians. Now, we're not going to do an overview of the whole book or anything quite as extensive, but we we see just in the verse previous. Look back up with me just Just three verses here, I guess, let's see here. Yep, three verses to verse 21 of chapter 2. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So these, these verses here, these four verses are essentially sandwiched in between Paul's his argument against the teaching of false apostles that had crept into the church. You see the, according to human precepts and teachings, the, this, this teaching that had crept into the church that looked really good. On the outside, when you're just looking at things, you have all of the activity, don't touch, don't taste, the asceticism, severity to the body, it it all looks good. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the Apostle Paul says they're of no value. 
Now, if you'll, if you'll jump with me just to verse 5, we'll pass up the four verses here. He says, put to death, therefore, in light of what he's about to say in verses 1 through 4, therefore, in light of these things, what is earthly in you? So this is what it's sandwiched in between. These four verses here are essentially the springboard, the fuel, the gas of the Christian life that the Apostle Paul is going to use to shoot this church into true holiness. They had tried the things of the world. They had tried human wisdom. They had tried things that looked good, but ultimately at the end of the day didn't work. So that's what we're dealing with here. We have the religion that doesn't work, and then we have true holiness lived out, which is going to be from verse 5 down to the end of the chapter. So that's what we're dealing with here. These four verses are going to be the thrust. This is Paul's push for the people to true religion, true religious experience, true holiness, and ultimately true Christ-likeness. So when he says here, if then you have been raised, this is not a question as to their salvation. The, The Apostle Paul here has already established in the previous chapter that they have indeed been raised with Christ. So the the if here is rather part of the argument that the Apostle Paul is using. If then you have been raised with Christ. The assumption has already been made that they are raised with Christ. So now he spells out what you're to do. If then this is true about you, which we've established it is, this is the way in which you live. This is the way in which your life is to be categorized, characterized by. Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. You know, it's, it's a, very simple, a very simple phrase here. It, it, it's so, so very simple that you, know, you can almost read this if you're going through your, your devotional reading and, and read, seek the things that are above and, and just think, yeah, you know, I, I kind of know what he's talking about here, but do you, do you guys actually know what this looks like? When, when we read the words of the Apostle Paul, when he commands this, seek the things that are above, do we actually know what he's talking about? Are we able to leave this place today and say, yes, I know what he means, I know what he's looking for, and I know how to apply this to our lives? That's something we need, we need to be very, very clear about. So we, we see here things that are above. This is what he's calling us to seek. Seek the things that are above. Now, the, the word above is not a word that's foreign to us. This, this, isn't something that, this isn't something that requires a whole lot of definition. But the word above is a relative term because it changes based upon the environment. I, I think you would all understand what I mean if I were to say that the ceiling is above me right now at this very moment. But that immediately changes if I go and I grab a ladder and I climb on the roof. All of a sudden, I am above the ceiling. I am above the roof. So it changes based upon the context and the reference point. And so here, the Apostle Paul is very specific in choosing his terms. Seek the things that are above. Now he's going to qualify it for us. He's going to give us the reference point and the context. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. 
So the context is where God is and the reference point is Jesus Christ seated on the throne. Seated on the throne. So now when you're using the terminology, when when you're using the wordage that the Apostle Paul chooses to word here, the things that are above, when your reference point is the thing that is the highest, there's nothing farther above. There's nothing higher than Christ on the throne. There is nothing more supreme. There is nothing towering above Jesus Christ and him ruling and reigning. This is what the Apostle Paul gets our eyes on. This is the focus. You're going to seek the things there, the highest things possible. We, we see back in chapter 1 that the word preeminent is used in description of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say the, the highest of the high, the greatest of the greatest, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There, there is no one greater. There is no place higher And so when we use this terminology in reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is calling us to set our focus, to set our aim on that which is the highest, that which is the greatest, and to be content with nothing else. That's what had happened in the church. The people had been, they were becoming content with that which was less than the best. He's saying, set your eyes on the highest of the highest, shoot for that and nothing else. Don't be content with anything lower. Don't be content with anything less. This teaching had come into the body. It had come into the church that looked really good but wasn't producing true holiness. The people had become content with that which was less than the things that are above where Christ is. These high things, these spiritual things. And ultimately, when we're thinking of Christ, we're thinking of Him on the throne We could say eternal things. That's what the Apostle Paul wants our minds to be set on. That's what he's trying to refocus the Colossian church on. Look up. Set your mind on higher things. You were made for more than you're settling for. Brethren, how prone are we to settle? How prone are we to settle? Have we settled? I think is the question that should be asked. In any way in our life, have we settled for that which is less than what God has for us? All of the the limitless possibilities of grace, have we come to the point where we can say, well, you know, I'm I'm okay with what looks good. I'm okay with with what looks good. I'm okay with what looks positively on by by those on the outside. You know, it it looks impressive. And so that's, that's, that's enough. That's enough for me. The the Apostle Paul is is clearly calling for something higher than this. I mean, we we see in, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, it says, For we have no lasting city, but seek the city that is is to come. That this is essentially what we're seeking for. To seek the things that are above is to seek the things that are the greatest, the best of the best. It is to live this life with that as our focus. To really live as though we believe the truth we say we believe. To live as though we are strangers and sojourners in this life, as though this life is actually coming to an end, that this world is passing away and we're made for higher things. We've been called to come up from the filth that we once dwelt in. Paul is coming back to this church and is going, guys, what's happened? You've settled? 
With, with everything that's at your disposal, you've settled for this? Just the wisdom of this world, the things of this world, the approval of this world? You have Christ. You're one of his subjects. You serve the King of kings. Will you settle for this? This, this brethren, is, is what we need to ask ourselves. On an individual basis, as a congregation, as, as the universal church, we, we cannot afford to settle for less than what the Lord has planned for us. And this is what it means. So when we're looking at this word seek, seek the things. Seek the things. Later we're going to see that we're to set our mind on things above not on things of the earth. But we, we see that contrast being made. It's to seek the things that are above. To seek lofty things. To seek holy things. To seek eternal things. That's what the Apostle Paul is calling the church to see here. And that's going to be essentially the, the, the springboard, like I've said, into all of the holy living that goes from verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Is this is going somewhere. This is taking you somewhere. There's a purpose. There's a meaning. Set your focus there. Have that as your greatest ambition. I've got to make it to the end. Doing whatever it takes to get there. Doing whatever it takes. And so, looking here at the passage, just, just doing some observation here really quickly, we, we see that the Apostle Paul is going to cover all of his bases with us. Because we see that seek the things, and then in verse 2, we see set your minds. The, the seeking is the outward, the practical aspect of things, but you see that the Apostle Paul is going to deal with the mindset. He's going he's to deal with our thinking as well, so he's, he's covering everything. He's covering the, the external, the practical of seeking, and then the internal, the way in which we're to think. The Apostle Paul knows better than any one of us that the war is won or lost here. We live based upon what we believe. We live upon what we think on. We, we live based upon our thoughts. We live based upon the things that fill our minds. So moving on here, we see that that, that is the, the basic definition of seeking the things that are Above, it's seeking eternal things, seeking heavenly things, seeking the best of the best things. This is the fuel for holy living. Because if you've set your mind on the things of this world, if it's just about what we can get here in this temporary life, then better to just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no point to living a holy and sacrificial life if this is all there is. And so you're going to see later that in verse 4, Paul points once again even more so to eternity and ultimately to our Lord's return, ushering in that, that final, final last step into eternity. But let's, let's move along before we get there. Let's see, I think I, I turned back a page. Yeah. Um, this, this is the, the greatest am ambition this, uh, there's, there's nothing greater than this. I mean, you, you think about the things that the world seeks after, just the job and the career. And we've, we've got a lot of parents in here, a lot of new parents especially. Many of you know that I, I just had 
We just had our first, first child about a, a month and a week ago, and, and you want great things for your child. It's just, it's natural. As a, as a parent, you just, I want the best for my child. The Apostle Paul is putting forth the best. Yes, we, we want them to be healthy. We want them to be strong and smart and successful and all of these things, and Paul is saying, this is the best of the best. Nothing compares. Nothing comes even close. The things of this world are just fleeting. They're passing away. This is the greatest ambition and this is the goal. This must be the goal of our lives. I, I just had an illustration that came to mind with, with, with Jacob from, from Genesis chapter 29. And, and you see the way that he lived his life. The, the way that he worked, day in and day out. Many of you know the story. Jacob is attempting to secure his bride, Rachel. Her father says, work seven years. And so he's working, 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 you know, blood, sweat, and tears every day. He's working himself to the bone, and yet it says it felt to him as just a few days. Seven years, just as a few days, because he was locked in on the prize. He had his eyes on the prize. He was focused on what was out on the horizon. And because of that, the, that led to the life he lived. This is, this is going to be the exact same thing, the exact format that the Apostle Paul is going to be setting forth for us, especially there in verse 4 that we'll get to in a moment. Every day with our eyes set upon the prize, filling our thoughts, filling our minds, seeking the things that are best even doing away with that which is good for that which is best. And I mean, you, you think about just that illustration there that God has put for us in Scripture. Who, who really has the better deal here? You've got Jacob who, you know, obviously we know after the first seven years, he gets kind of swindled out of, out, of, out of Rachel who he really wanted and so he works another seven years and then, and then he finally gets Rachel and then they all grow old and they die. Who's, who's really got it better? We've got this one life to will soon be passed and then Christ is ours forevermore. We have so much more to look forward to, brethren. But, but before we move on to that, before we move on to the, the rest of, of Paul's argument here, we see verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Brethren, I think it is so important to note the fact that this is the mode he wants us to focus on. This is the mode of our Lord Jesus Christ that he wants, he wants our eyes on. It's Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, seated on the throne, reigning supreme. This is what he wants our thoughts to be focused on. And you know, it's, it's interesting because there are different different ways in which Christ is represented. You know, we see Him as the shepherd in Scripture. We see Him even as a, a sheep in Scripture. There, there are different ways in which this could be done. I think the question should be asked, why, why Christ on the throne? When, when the Apostle Paul is seeking to motivate a church to live a holy and Christ-like life in light of eternity, in light of eternal matters, why, why Christ on the throne? the throne. Any ideas? Might sound like a trick question, but it's actually very simple. Anybody? 
I'm all right with waiting. I'm, I'm open to wait. I'm, I've, I'm actually genuinely curious. What are your guys' ideas? That's where he is. Exactly. Jesus is on the throne now. And now, I, I want to balance what I'm about to say because I think it, it can be misconstrued. Brethren, I, I am a full-fledged believer in, in your daily devotional lives always being in the Gospels. Always spending some time in one of the four Gospels. No matter what your reading plan looks like, no matter where you're at in the Scriptures, always seeking to refresh your mind on Jesus Christ and the life that He lived. Past tense. This version of Christ seated on the throne makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And you say, whoa, whoa, wait. What do you you mean version? You know, what Jesus is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's true. The reason that I use that terminology is, that, is actually because of something a coworker told me once. You know, that the Christmas season was, was rolling around and, and he said, I mean, we, we've all seen the, the little glass figurines of, of the, the stable there with a little baby in the manger. And, and, he, and just talking about Christmas, he said, he said I love baby Jesus. He said, baby Jesus is my favorite version. So when I, when I use that terminology, version, in the future, just, just know that it's coming from a humanistic point of view. It's coming from a lost man's perspective here. He looks at the weak, helpless baby and says, that's the Jesus for me. That's the one that I like. That's the one that appeals to me and my desires. And brethren, we all know when we were lost, we, we didn't want a threatening Savior. We didn't want a threatening Christ. There's no place in our society for a Jesus on the throne who says, kneel or perish. There's no place for that. There's no place for that in this, in this society. The, the world can't stand this version of Jesus. Just, just woo me. You know what? The, the world has no problem with the Joel Olsteins. We're going to come along and feed them this lopsided version of Christ. You know, I'm just here to preach on the love of Christ because, you know, God is love and, and He's so patient and He's so kind and he's, he's so gentle. And brethren, He is all of those things. But as soon as Christ stops being Christ because of a lopsided viewpoint, we no longer have a gospel. As soon as we overemphasize a side of Jesus' character that the Scriptures don't overemphasize, we've lost the Jesus of Scripture. Brother, I, I love to hear about the love of Jesus. I don't want anybody thinking that we, we've got to just be constantly afraid and, and in fear and trembling. That's, that's not the point. The point is that we have to have balance. The point is that we have to have balance and the fact of the matter is is that Jesus is no longer that baby. As as much as that needed to happen for the grand plan of salvation, Jesus is no longer on the cross. He's no longer in this world in in, in the sense that he was in his his 30-year ministry here or the three years, his 30-year life. He's no longer trudging around with the disciples. He's no longer debating with the Pharisees. That, that's over. That's done. It was needful. It was necessary. And we don't want to ever forget it. That's why we continually have the Lord's Supper. But that's not where He is anymore. That's not where Jesus is. This is Jesus. 
This is the current, the present Jesus, though the same yesterday, today, and forever, for sure, without a doubt. This is the Jesus. Jesus here, seated on the throne. This is the Jesus that sadly so many churches in the West feel they need to apologize for. They need to make excuses for. Maybe, you know, just round off some of those harsh edges. We'll, we'll, we'll preach the love and we'll preach the compassion, but, you know, there's some stuff over here that we just got to kind of hide away. It's a, it's a little embarrassing just the, the way. This, is, this Christ is offensive. This Christ on his throne? We, we, we can't have that. We, we, we need... We need Jesus, you know, being interrogated. We, we need Jesus being, we need that, we need that version. We need that version. And, and we, we live in a day and age that just breeds this way of, of thinking. The people care more about how you say something than whether or not what you say is actually true. They care more about how what you say makes them feel than whether or not it's biblical. That is not a problem the Apostle Paul has and that's not a problem that our Lord Jesus has. Don't don't step on my toes. Don't don't ruffle my feathers. Don't say anything that's going to make me uncomfortable. There's no place for, for this ultimatum kind of Christianity, this kind of black and white, in or out, you know, I just, I'm, I'm good. I'm making it. I mean, can you guys imagine if Jesus walked the earth again in this day and age? Can you guys imagine what, what that would be like to watch? I mean, not, not even to mention the stuff that he says in Revelation. In, in this day and age, it's, it's all about, you know, kindness and compassion and, and be gentle. And, and then we look over and Jesus said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because of your lukewarmness. And it's like, Jesus, you, you can't say that. That's... That's not kind. That's not, that's not gentle. G- Jesus, you, you, can't, you can't make ultimatums. I read an article about how in a relationship, ultimatums are toxic the other day. Obviously, it was a secular artist who was writing about how you're in a toxic relationship if your spouse gives you ultimatums. It's this way or this way. Choose. You're either in or you're out. You can't do that. It's all about compromise and it's all about finding a way to, you know, to reason with one another. And, and I'm not saying necessarily that you should bring that into your relationship, but I'm using that as an illustration here about who this one is that's on the throne. This is the thrust. This is the force. When we're thinking about the things above, you don't ever miss the fact that it's to be the things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Let me give you just... just a few, more, a few more examples here of, of Jesus and his ministry here, here on earth. You, know, you, you have the example of Peter. You have the example of Peter, and, and you know the account there in, in Matthew 16 where Jesus has just got done telling them that I'm going to go and, and I'm going to have to suffer many things. And, and Peter comes along and says, Jesus, that, that doesn't work. It doesn't fit the mold. That's not going to happen to you because we've still got all this stuff. And can you imagine if you were one of the other disciples? And you're standing there going, yeah, you know what, Peter, Peter's right. Peter's right. <laughs> Jesus, you can't, you can't go die now. You haven't even brought the kingdom in. You haven't defeated the Romans yet. Where's all of this? You know what, I, I think Peter's right. I'm, I'm sure glad he said something. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
It's like, man, I'm glad I didn't say anything. I'm glad Peter took that bullet. You're sitting there like, whoa. Jesus, you, you can't say that. You can't, you can't say, you're a hindrance to me. Jesus, Jesus, you, you, you can't say that, Jesus. What, what about Peter's feelings? What, what about the way, and, and then you have Jesus coming into the temple with, with his handmade you know, coil of whips here, and he's driving out all the animals, destroying everything they've set up there, and it's like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, can you imagine if one of our elders did that today? Can you imagine if James went into the back and whipped up a coil and went out into some temple and started clearing the whole thing out? Like, James. Can you imagine if most people in most churches saw that? They'd be like, this guy is nuts. He needs to be locked away. This man should not be a part of society. And yet you see Jesus, the holy men of Jesus' day come to him and he says, white wash tombs you look good on the outside but you're full of dead men's bones so what's what's the point in all this brethren aren't aren't you glad that that's that's our king aren't you glad that that's our savior the one who will not compromise no matter who stands in his way You have all of this following that Jesus had developed and yet when the truth came to it and people were going, wait, wait a second, this is kind of hard to hear. I I don't know if I want to stick around for this and everybody starts going and Jesus goes, wait guys, let me, let me, you just misunderstood. Let me, let me go ahead and and reshape this. He looks to the 12 and says, are you guys going too? uncompromising, unwavering, strength of character and resolve. Jesus was going to walk this path even if he was the only one that walked it. And we see by the end, that's exactly what happened. But aren't, aren't you glad that Jesus isn't willing to budge? Aren't you glad that this king on the throne is not willing to make provision for any of our flesh? I mean, can you, can you guys think back to the time when you were lost? How... How many of you here tried to bargain with God? I, I know I did. You, you get into a certain spot and you say, ah, Lord, if you if you'd just get me out of this, then I'd serve you. If you just give me this thing over here, th- then I'd believe. And, and we start, you know, subtly trying to sneak conditions in here. See, Jesus, if you could just give me this thing, if you could just treat me in this way, then then I'd I'd give my life to you. I made made all kinds of bargains with the Lord. I tried. I tried all manner of things. Lord, I'll I'll believe if you do this for me. I I made all manner of of promises in, in an attempt to secure my place an eternal life while also getting a little bit of my sin along with it. Lord, I, I just I can't give this thing up over here, but you but you can have everything else. I talked to this one lady, door-to-door evangelism, and and she she seemed so close to the kingdom, brethren, but it was her kids. She said, I couldn't give my kids to the Lord. I'll give them everything else, but but this one thing, Lord, you're gonna have to take me. Take me with, with just me, but my, my kids are, are still mine. Do you know, you know what Jesus did? You know what he did in my life? 
is, is he didn't come along and, and you know, put his arm around me and kind of just coddle me and everything's going to be okay and, and you just got to try, try harder. You, you know what he did? He laid waste to all of my idols. Everything that I held near and dear to my heart that needed to go in order that he could reign supreme in here, he wiped it out, destroyed it. Brother, I hope that you can relate to that. I hope there was a time in your life where Jesus came and took you at the knees and there with the air knocked out of you on your knees, falling down on your face, then that irreversible decree gets made as he sits there on the throne and he says, Almighty love, arrest that man. Never the same. Never the same, brethren. Aren't you, aren't you so thankful that that's the king we serve? unwavering, unfaltering, not willing to make any provision for any of our filth. It's all or nothing, in or out. Either you give me all of you or you give me nothing. This is the king on the throne. This is the Lord Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus. And, and I, can, I can imagine those of you here who, who are lost, and you're hearing this now and, and, and you're thinking, that doesn't sound like love. That sounds cruel. That, that's unfair. He, he's going to take, take everything that you, you built, everything that you thought was yours, and, and he's just going to smash it to bits right in front of you. That's not kind. That's not loving. That's not gentle. That's because our perspective of love is wrong. That's because our view of love is based upon how we think we should be loved and not God's true version of love. What's not fair is that the very first time we didn't spit at the feet of the one on the throne that he didn't annihilate us on the spot. That's not fair. But what we have right now at this very moment is not fair. Life is not fair when we deserve hellfire for all of eternity. So, moving along here, I mean, we, you, you see the, the emphasis here of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. As, as the Apostle Paul is transitioning from the false religion to what true religion looks like, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the fuel. That's the force of righteousness. The, the whole work of salvation now culminated with Jesus reigning on the throne. The victory that we know now is the victory that we find in Jesus. He conquered us that we now can know victory. And at the same time, you know, the, the question has been, has been raised, this, this term here, seated at the right hand of God. There's, there's debate as to whether this means literally seated at the right hand of God because the term often is referred to as power and authority and reverence and respect. But the two don't contradict one another. And so you, you see here that as Paul is about to give the motivating factor for a righteous living, he wants our eyes fixated upon an almighty Christ, seated and reigning right now at this very moment with an arm that is so long we could never get away from it. 
Seated on the throne, yes, but with a power so strong, He's still always, always with us, always near, always walking with us and talking with us along life's narrow way. So this is, this is the Christ that Paul wants us to see as sitting on the throne. This is, this is the one that he wants planted deep into our mind as we begin to seek the things that are above, seeking eternal things, living in light of eternity. So now let's move on to verse 2. We've got to move along here. Set your minds on things that are above. Really quickly before we go any further, I want to impress upon you the responsibility of God. The responsibility of God that he places upon us with regards to this text. The Apostle Paul is very specific about the way that he words this. And his intention is to put the responsibility on us. We are responsible for obeying these two commands. Now, we're looking at this phrase, set your minds. Just to do a little bit of a word story with you. This, this word is phreneo. Obviously, we see it's, it's an action, so we have the verb. We have it in the present active imperative. Uh, imperative. So we have the present. The present is for now. It's for right now. So you can say, well, the present is called the present. This will always apply. And the present will always be the present because as soon as it isn't, it is now the present. So this is always something that is commanded of us. It's in the active voice, which means that the subject of the phrase here is the one who's actually doing this, which is us. Set your minds. Set your minds upon things above. It is in the imperative, so it's a command just as, just as sure, just as weighty as love the Lord your God, just as weighty as love your neighbor as yourself. Set your minds on things above. It's said in the second person plural. The second person is you. So once again, reiterating the voice of active. You are doing this. The command, you set your mind and you do it actively now and forevermore. In the second person is you all. So nobody escapes. You personally have this responsibility and it is you all encompassing everyone that Paul is talking to. If you are a Christian, this applies to you. This is not for the holy rollers. This is not for the Bible thumpers. This is not for the Spurgeons and just the, the you know, Jonathan Edwards or the Jim Elliots. This is not something that's reserved simply for those that are going to go out and do great things for the Lord. That's not what's being said here. This is the basic of the basics. This is for everyone. Man, woman, and child, if you claim the name of Christ, if you have been raised, you are to set your minds on eternal things. You are to think in terms of heavenly matters. You are to set your mind upon spiritual things and it's not an option. There are no exemptions. There are no ways around this and it is at all times. This is something we have to work at. This is something we have to be intentional about. It's not something that happens by accident, and we see that in the next phrase. Set your minds on things that are above. Then he comes at us from the negative, not on things that are on the earth. Now, you only speak this way if there is a danger, an inclination toward the very thing that you're warning against. The Apostle Paul is a man just like any one of us. 
He knows the proneness to wander up here in the mind. He knows our proneness to wander. And brethren, farther than that, the Apostle Paul knows this is where the battle is won or lost for holy living. You wander here before you wander here. You wander in the mind before you wander in the hands, in the body, in the mouth. It will always display the way that you're thinking. Your actions tell a tale about what your mind is set on. Now, to give an example of this, we, we have what, is, uh, what we already alluded to from, from Matthew 16. We have the example of, of Peter. And Peter is there and he says what he says to the Lord. The Lord says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you are a hindrance to me. For you are phraneo. He uses the exact same phrase that the Apostle Paul does here. You are not setting your mind upon the things of God. This is how weighty this is, brethren. As foundational and as fundamental as this is, the Apostle Peter became a hindrance to our Lord Jesus Christ because of what was happening here. That's how intentional we need to be. That's how resolved we need to be. That this is our responsibility to set and reset and reset and reset our mind upon heavenly things, high things, spiritual things, eternal things. That's our Lord's diagnosis. Peter, you went bad in the mind before you were bad in word, before you were bad in in action. The mistake happened long before the word came up. It happened up in the mind. And, and brethren, I just want to appeal to you just on a human level here. I would, I would argue that we are in far greater danger of this in our day and age than the Apostle Peter is, or, or was rather. We, we live in such a, an information-saturated age before you actually had to go to libraries. Now you have everything just on your phone. You have everything at just a touch, at just a search. I took a, a web development course uh, back when I was working for, um, well, I won't mention the brother's name, but so I'm, I'm taking this course on, on web development. I'm taking this course and they had, in, in this whole course, they had a section that was entirely dedicated to manipulating the eyes of your user. That was what, that was what this whole section was dedicated to, is that you're going to have this thing over here and you're going to have it this color and this shape and in this way and you're going to have this position here and it's going to be flashing like that and it's all for the sake of bringing their eyes here exactly where you want them. If you can get their eyes you can get their mind. If you can get their mind, a lot of times you can get their money. And that was the whole thought process behind this course. Is we're here to make money. We're trying to build things in a way in which is going to appeal to people's attention. We've got to appeal to people's attention span. This is, this is just the, the water in which we live. So if the fight was real for Peter, the fight is going to have to be especially real for us in this, this distraction-ridden age. And brethren, I know none of you here who are truly the Lord's wants to be a hindrance to God. I think very clearly, though, our Lord shows how that is a very real possibility based upon what fills our minds. 
based upon what fills our minds. Not only are we a hindrance to God, but we end up being a hindrance to ourselves. When, when we're setting our minds, when we're filling our minds with things of earth, as the Apostle Paul is telling us not to do, don't set your mind upon the things of the earth. Don't set your mind upon the worldly systems, the worldly means of righteousness or joy or happiness, the things of this world, the schemes and the wisdom of this world. If you set your mind there, we, we have the example of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Why, why do you say that? You, you only speak that way if you're in a heart-losing kind of situation. If, if the sun is out and you know, everything is just signing and dandy, you, you don't talk that way. He's talking that way, as he says in the verse following, that though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Look, look back at our text with me here for a second. I want you to see verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden. Brethren, we can't see it with these eyes. It's hidden with Christ. Now we're going to see later about how we're going to appear when Christ appears. But you can't, you can't see it with these eyes. And so if you've got your eyes set upon the things of this world the best you have to hope for is death. Just the wasting away of this life. The wasting away of this, of this body. That's, that's the best this life has to offer. All of our possessions, all of our, even our, our relationships and, and, and everything, it's all coming to an end. It's all temporary. The Apostle Paul tells us later in that text, looking to the things, not the things that we can see, but to the things that we can't see, to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brethren, if, if you, the reason I was mentioning earlier about being a hindrance to yourself, if, if you want to know one of the quickest ways, you want to know one of the quickest ways to, to depress yourself, spike your anxiety, just... Just increase your, your overall sadness and dreariness in this life. Go ahead and just fix your, fix your mind upon things on earth. Fix your mind upon you know, this physical realm, this physical body, and just watch as things are just getting worse and worse in this world, just wars and rumors of wars. If you're living for this, and not only living, if you're just thinking on this, that's how you lose heart. That's how Paul was able not to lose heart. It was by thinking about things beyond, things eternal. He had his eyes set on the highest of the high things. Eternity with Jesus seated upon the throne. So, brethren, hindrance to God, hindrance to ourselves. This is what we're fighting for. Is this, this looking Setting our mind, filling our mind with eternal thoughts, filling our mind with glory. Yes, it's, it's good. It's, it's good to be obedient. But I mean, like the psalmist says, and in keeping of them, there is great reward. Brethren, don't rob yourself of this. 
don't rob yourself of being able to live the life truly as God meant us to live to the fullest extent, taking part of the highest of the high things and instead being content with so much less, being focused upon the trivial things of this world that are just temporary and are passing away. So now let's, let's move on to, to verse 4. So we see that our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears. I want you guys to notice the word that gets used twice here, appear. When your life appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. This, this is the end of Paul's thought here. Before he then breaks out into the practical application of everything he's been teaching, verse 4 here is the final thrust. It's the final step, the final bit of energy, of propulsion for this church to shoot off into limitless holiness. When Christ, who is your life, appears, he takes them to the end, brethren. That's what the Apostle Paul said there in 2 Corinthians. We don't don't lose hope for though we waste away our inner man being renewed for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's what the Apostle Paul does here. When he's seeking to promote holy living, righteous living, Christ-like living, he takes people to the finish line. He takes people to the goal. He shows them the prize and he says, it's coming guys. It's only a matter of time. We're going somewhere. This is leading someplace. It's not pointless. The, the tr- I mean, you're going to see verse 5. Put to death. Put to death. There's death involved in this life. But it's not pointless. It's not meaningless. The trials, the hardships, the tribulations, the fire that we must suffer in order that we might be heirs and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. That when He comes, we might be glorified with Him. It's taking us somewhere. There's an end. There's a goal. Paul takes the people after showing them, look guys, don't be content with the lesser things. Do whatever it takes to get there and now set your eyes on the future. That's where you're headed. That's the motivation. How do you make the sacrifice? I mean, how, how does some guy like Evan pack up his life and move everything over to a country where they don't have running water? That's a, it's, a, it's a waste. He was born in the richest country in the world. He ought, to, he ought to have the career and the job path and be making sick figures and get the house and the white picket fence, right? Just live that soft life. It's, it's meaningless. It's pointless. Paul says, in light of that day, it has eternal meaning. Totally meaningful. That's a meaningful life. You make the sacrifice now as you're looking to the future and you go, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. I'm going to see it with my own eyes. Brethren, does that still excite you? I mean, we come into this life and we're just so excited into the Christian life with, with, with everything now. Brethren, does that still set a fire in your breast? Does that still set a fire in your heart where you say, I'm going somewhere. This has meaning. The suffering that I'm enduring right now. Brethren, I know there are some of you who are suffering things right now. As much as I wish I could say I know how you feel. I don't. Things that I just, I can't even relate to. Things that are just out of my depth. 
And the enemy wants to come in and say it's meaningless. It's pointless. Just this suffering. Look at what God has you in. Look, look at where He has you. And the whole time, Christ is like, it's only a matter of time. You're coming home. You're coming home. There's a finish. There's an end here. It doesn't last forever. We're going to finish here. Turn, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to look finally in closing just at what, what our Lord says. John chapter 14. A, a word for troubled hearts. <clears throat> chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The, these words right here, brethren, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. Brethren, I, I know as, as men, perhaps it, it, it may be may be a little bit more difficult to enter into these words perhaps like the women can. I think there's, there's an advantage given there to a certain degree. Brethren, are, are, is there a, any more intimate verse in the Bible where this one on the throne looks down and put, put your name in here. He looks at, at you and he looks at you and he looks at you. And he says, I'm coming and I'm going to take you to myself. You're mine and I'm going to take you home. I'm coming back and I'm taking you to myself. I'm taking you to me. Oh, brethren, that's the fuel. That's the fire for holy living. That's the fire for a righteous life. That's the fire that's going to get you through the good days and the bad days. When, when things are, are down and when there's this, the suffering and the trials and, and the temptations and everything seems to be closing in upon you, just hear those words. It's coming to an end. Keep going. Keep going. There's a finish line. There's a reward at the end. And I'm coming and I'm going to take you to myself. Brethren, do you ever lose yourself in thought thinking about that day? I mean, we're told there's going to be a day where every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. The Catholics, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, they'll all bow. And we're going to be there. We're going to see that with our own two eyes. We're, we're going to know what it's like to lay our face down at the feet of Jesus. You guys, I don't know how many of you here know, know who Adrian Roberts is, but the, the last message I believe that he ever preached before he died, he stood up at the very, at the very end and it was less of a message, less of a sermon and, and more of a, just him telling stories of, of glorious things that had happened in the past. And, and he said, well, brethren, he said, I'll, I'll see you here or there or in the air. He said, come and find me at the feet of Jesus. 
That's for us, brethren. That place is for us. We're going somewhere. Set your mind on eternal things. Things that last forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we long to know more of the glorious realities as, as one of my dear brothers once said, he, he believes you intentionally left so much of the details of heaven out of Scripture because you knew that if we knew too much, we would be tempted to speed up the process. Oh Lord, we, we long for that day. As, as the Apostle Paul says, it, uh, we long to depart and be with Jesus. Oh, Father, I ask, fill our minds with this way of thinking, of having everything in our life be filtered through eternal life, eternity with Jesus. Help us, Father. In Christ's name I ask. Amen.